The needs of Army combatant commanders are constantly changing. Troop training needs evolve as the U.S. population, the Army's raw material, changes. Equipment and other support needs are also a moving target, so to speak. It all comes home for the Army Forces Command, or FORCECOM. For an update on readiness at the Association of the U.S. Army Conference in Washington yesterday, I caught up with the FORCECOM commander, General Michael Garrett. General, I want to start in the very beginning. Everyone knows what CENTCOM is and all of the combatant commands. Tell us the brief story of FORCECOM. Yeah, FORCECOM provides decisive combat formations to all of the combatant commands. So if you think about CENTCOM and how we've supported them over the last 20 years. Uh, if you think about, you know, today what we're doing uh, in Indo-PACOM, AFRICOM, UCOM, uh, these are uh, principally ForceCom forces. So you're the cross-cutting force of, of the commands, you might well, say. We represent a big chunk of the Army. And if you think about, you know, a, a large portion of the active component, all of the Army Reserve... And, you know, we have a uh, training and oversight responsibility for the Guard, and the Guard falls under us uh, when they are under Title 10. All right. And interesting, we're speaking recently uh, after the passing of General Odierno, who tangled a lot with Congress and so forth on this whole issue of readiness, and that was a, a, an issue for the Army and a lot of the armed forces, actually, over the past several years. Let's talk about readiness and what it means in today's army. You know, we're not in Afghanistan anymore, and there's been some pullback here and there. Define readiness in in the contemporary sense. You know, what I start with in most of my discussions anymore uh, is to remind the folks that I'm talking to why we exist as an army. And we only exist for one reason, to fight and to win our nation's wars. The readiness that we generate has to be sufficient to do that. We also have, I mean, we're at a very interesting uh, point uh, in time. Modernization, people, readiness, these are the Army's priorities. And if we don't manage them carefully, we're either not going to have sufficient readiness to meet combatant commanders' requirements, or we're going to fall off of some of our very, very important modernization efforts, Uh, Or we're not going to take care of the people that we have in the Army in the way that they deserve to be taken care of. You said modernization, and that does get mixed up with the idea of readiness quite a bit. Because readiness, when you think about it, there's the people component, but they can't go in with just a fire hose in their hand to a combat. So it's the equipment and then the whole support tail that goes back to the IT and the cloud and all of this. Tell us about modernization from your standpoint. Yeah, so Forcecom is all about readiness. Modernization is future readiness. And it's readiness that we absolutely have to have. And it's readiness, uh, and, and you know, we talk a lot about our modernization efforts. And we are modernizing not just equipment, uh, but we're also modernizing the way we manage people, the way we manage talent in the Army. Uh, we are modernizing uh, the way that uh, we manage and look at readiness in the Army. You know, I've tried to, and I'm sure I'm not the first force comp commander to do this, uh, but on any given day, you know, my goal is to provide the exact amount of readiness that we need to meet combatant commander requirements, and not a whole bunch more, because a whole bunch more is wasteful if you look at its potential impact on our modernization and our people efforts. And does the soldier training doctrine, does that come out of force comp? The doctrine actually comes out of TRADOC. 
So General Funk and Training and Doctrine Command are, are responsible for the doctrine. Uh, and then once the doctrine's developed, it's given to the Army, and then we take it from there. All right. And so how has that changed? Let's talk about that issue of, of training. How has that changed to accommodate what it is you are getting as people that enlist in the first place, the raw material? And there's several tens of thousands every year that are coming in in this, in this process. How has that changed? The chief often says, and he's exactly right, we are in a war for talent. If you look at our country today, only 29% of young men and women meet the requirements to even be eligible to serve in the Army. And so we are competing and fighting for that talent every single day. The other, the other piece is, as we look at uh, you know, readiness, and what's really important uh, about our Army is that we have soldiers, and it, and it all starts, these are foundational things, soldiers who are disciplined, soldiers who are fit, uh, soldiers who are well-trained, and soldiers who are part of a cohesive team, squad. That is the foundation uh, of our Army. You know, what I tell, uh, I was in Europe last week talking to uh, some of our formations over there, and, and I remind them, you know, real readiness is... A tank crew that can acquire a target, engage a target, and move on to the next target faster than our enemy. That's where it all, that's where it all starts. And if you look outside the Army, there has been a push over the past number of years to incorporate some of society's, uh, let's say, political, social changing trends and express them in the component makeup, human-wise, of the military. And we'll just leave it at that enough to describe it. But yet at some point you have to accommodate that and almost celebrate it. But at the same time, you need people that think in a certain way, as you say, once they're in the tank, when all of that really shouldn't even be a factor. So how do you balance all of that? You know, the good thing about our Army is we have a set of values that we all live by. We bring in young men and women from all parts uh, of the world, really, not just the United States. And they represent the diversity that makes our Army the Army that it is today. And we, we certainly value that. But our values are what I think separates our Army from other uh, portions of society. And there are a number of changes ongoing socially. And uh, the Army is not immune to any of those. I mean, we are reflective of society. Uh, and we do our absolute best to deal with them. You know, taking care of our people is our number one priority. And I personally think the best way we take care of people in the Army is to make sure that uh, they are trained to do their job, uh, that they are challenged uh, every day, uh, and that, uh, you know, we provide for soldiers and families uh, so that uh, they do want to stay with us. And let's talk about the people then beyond the induction and training and so forth. And at some point, they have to be identified as officer material. How has that evolved, again, against this backdrop of change in doctrine and change in the strategy of the United States, which is moving toward great powers, the changes in society? I mean, it's a lot to bring in to someone that says, that's an officer. Uh, I think the way we develop our officers uh, has not changed that much over the years. I mean, yesterday, I was, uh, it was a huge honor. I was inducted into the ROTC Hall of Fame with a whole bunch of other really great friends, a couple of bosses. And I was struck by the fact that, you know, West Point, ROTC, 
OCS, those commissioning sources really haven't changed a whole bunch. But what we have done is, and again, this is a TRADOC responsibility, you know, but what we have done is we work very, very hard uh, to fight for the talent that I described to you earlier, uh, especially for our officer corps. So I, I, I am uh, very, very pleased with the young men and women who raise their right hand, you know, after they graduate from college or go to, you know, the United States Military Academy or even those who are commissioned through OCS. They make a huge difference. We're speaking with General Michael Garrett, commander of U.S. Army Forces Command Force Com. Earlier you said that you serve the combatant commands with what it is they need to do their mission. What's the feedback loop mechanism such that you know what their changing needs are or may not change radically, but there's a lot of subtle things that may change from generation to generation, week to week, month to month, depending on how the world is. How do you know what they need? Yeah, first of all, we have very, very close relationships with the combatant commanders themselves. You know, I mean, all came staff, up together. Absolutely. The chief of staff of the Army meets with them routinely. But really, where we gain the perspective that we need uh, and have on any given day is from our um, Army component commanders. So think about in Indo-PACOM, uh, the four-star headquarters that we have, the Army component there is United States Army Pacific. And General Flynn, who is the commander there, he is the Indo-PACOM's commander's Army commander. And, and there, you know, the conversations between the two of them uh, really determine, you know, what the Army requirements are and also the feedback that you alluded to uh, in terms of how we're doing. That's where it comes from. So I would tell you that our Army uh, service component commanders uh, provide the interface directly and the day-to-day interaction uh, with the uh, combatant commands. And this change in national policy, so-called shift to the potential great powers conflict, that's kind of a rolling change in policy and affecting, again, all branches of DOD. How has that affected Forcecom, and how do you think differently than perhaps you did before that change? I don't think any differently. I mean, it doesn't change our responsibility to provide manned, trained, and equipped forces to combatant commanders. That doesn't change, and that's my primary mission and focus on on any given day. Uh, We are looking at the future of warfare uh, we're looking at new formations, our multi-domain uh, operations task forces, our security force assistance brigades uh, are just a couple of examples uh, of some of the new units that we're going to introduce to meet the requirements that we foresee in the future. And there's been some work in cold environments, too, also. That's been a... Well, you know, I commanded United States Army Alaska, and I served in the Army's Airborne Brigade in Alaska. The chief uh, this last year published the Arctic Strategy, uh, and we are looking very, very hard at not just being able to operate in the Arctic, but to win in the Arctic. So what's tougher, heat or cold? Yeah, they are are both conditions, right? So, you know, in the Army and as a trainer, the task never changes. The standards to perform that task never change. But what changes constantly are the conditions, So the conditions of being in the desert or being in, you know, the frozen tundra all boil down to, and I think this is the most impactful aspect of of anything that we do, and it's leadership, right? So leadership 
is what uh, gets you through operating in the desert, and it certainly will get you through operating in the Arctic. Would you say you're optimistic about the future of the Army, given what you see in the raw material and society and everything else? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have my, I got, I got a son in the Army. I have a son-in-law in the Army. Um, you know, uh, most of my friends have kids in the Army, and I know that my son and son-in-law are better men than I am. I have, uh, I have no problems, you know, when I consider the future of our Army. And you're not the first in your family either. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. And it'd be interesting if you asked my dad this question, you know, like 30 years ago. But I tell you, you know, I know my kids are, are better. And these young kids, young men and women, they're not kids, they're young men and women, you know, that uh, join our Army are just incredible. And, uh, no, I have no, uh, I have no concern. The only concern I have sometimes is that, you know, old people like me don't get too much in the way. And final question, how's that new SIG rolling out as it spreads throughout the Army to replace the Berettas? Oh, good. No, it's a good pistol. It's a good pistol. General Michael Garrett is commander of the Army's Forces Command. Find this interview and all of our AUSA coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way 
to get to them and find out what they're doing and where what you can do to help them. Uh, I we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, Do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and... um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. 
and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.